All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 3 this morning. There's a, uh, there's a spot 400 miles northwest of my birthplace in Anchorage, Alaska, um, near the Canadian border on the east side. There's a 160-mile stretch of gravel and pavement that runs north from Tetlin Junction to a little city, a little town called Eagle. And this stretch of road is called Taylor Highway. On June 15, 2004, which for what it's worth is five weeks and four days after my birthday, uh, a boreal thunderstorm rolled through Chicken, Alaska, generating a number of lightning strikes. One of these lightning strikes threw a spark into an ancient Sitka spruce tree that had fallen some years before that. The spruce ignited, and the Taylor Complex wildfire of 2004 began. So that's June 15th. It ended sometime in September. It burned 1.3 million acres by the time it was done. So if you looked at a map of Nebraska and you started at Nebraska City and you drew, I'm going to try to do this backwards so it's correct for you. You, you, you went west from Nebraska City to Lincoln. And then you went from Lincoln north to Fremont. And then you went from Fremont east to Missouri Valley and then back down to Nebraska City. The contents of that polygon would be pretty close to 1.3 million acres. That's how much the Taylor Complex wildfire burned. You could smell and see the smoke 3,000 miles away in the Gulf of Mexico. In James 3, verse 1, <clears throat> James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at ships. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I, I don't want to assume this is true of all of you, but in my experience... As a Southern Baptist, James 3, 1 is normally used to gatekeep the ministry. So men who preach use James 1 to tell you who don't preach how dangerous our job is and how difficult our job is. And then move on from there to talk about the dangers for you of gossiping about us, which must be what the rest of uh, 2 through 12 is about. The fact of the matter is, this passage has, like all the others that we've covered in James, this passage has its own context, and it belongs seated 
alongside chapters 1 and 2. How far is it going to roll? That's the question, right? Some of you will recall uh, from October 30th, I preached uh, James 1, 26 and 27. And then I pointed out in that sermon that there are two paths James identifies by which we can verify the authenticity of our faith. The first one was the mouth. And the second one was widows and orphans. And, and what we did was we, we kind of summed that up. I said it's reasonable, I think, to assume that in uh, all of the scripture, you can't summarize pure and undefiled religion with uh, what you say and how you treat widows. There's got to be more to it than that. So there must be a reason that James identifies these two things in particular. And what I suggested was... In a marginally healthy church, so just your average Western Southern Baptist church, there probably is not a lot of auto theft and tax cheating and drunkenness and sexual immorality like on the surface where everybody is aware that it's happening. In fact, I would think it's reasonable to assume that none of that is happening in the context of a a good old Bible-believing church. Amen? Then I said, because churches tend to be morally dignified places which are made up of morally reputable people, you're not going to have a lot of people engaged in things that are obviously reprehensible. So what you're left with are what we call the little sins. You remember that? And I suggested that the reason James brings up the mouth and the treatment of widows and orphans is because we probably don't find it hard to imagine a church full of morally respectable people who are incredibly cutting with their tongues. Like that's not hard for us to imagine. If you've been at church any number of times, Uh, consistently for more than a a month or two, you've encountered this, this kind of spiritual, moral elitism that exists amongst the inner circle, especially of an established congregation, where they are incredibly, at the same time, committed to morality, but not really committed to using their mouths in a way that's pleasing to God, in as much as when we talk about one another, we don't do it in flattering terms. The whole pulse of that message was that pure and undefiled religion was a matter of having a gracious set of lips and a loving heart. So widows and orphans were identified as the most needy among us. But the whole idea is that we should be folks who control what we say and love people genuinely from the heart. So authenticity spiritually then is not determined by when the last time it was that you had a drink. Authenticity spiritually is determined by how's your mouth and what are you doing to love others? Okay. Let's do a quick, broad review of all of the messages that we've heard from James so far. Chapter 1. Evaluate trials 
in light of the gospel on the grounds of eternity and you will have joy alongside sorrow. Remember that? If you can't find joy alongside sorrow, ask God and he will give it to you. Exult in the fact that God has set his love upon you. Understand the temptation cycle so that you can learn to resist temptation. Remember, we saw how sin was born. Don't be so quick to anger and quick to run your mouth. Remember, quick, slow, slow was the waltz of Christian character. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Don't be sedentary, be doers of the word. Pure and undefiled religion, is, it is indicated more by what you do than by what you do not do. I'm going to say that again. Pure and undefiled religion is indicated more by what you do do than by what you are restrained from doing. Chapter 2, be careful about judging on outward appearances. Right? Watch out for attitudes of personal favoritism. I suggested that you can't heal what is broken inside your heart by sin by gaining approval from other people. It doesn't work. So we looked at Abraham and Rachel. They were justified by faith. They were moved to action by that faith that they had. And the action that they took from, from an honest evaluation, we would have to say, was hopeful, messy, and anxious action. But they were moving. So decide how you're going to treat people based on all of that. You've been loved. You've been promised wisdom from God. Resist temptation. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. Do the gospel. Don't just know it. Pure Christianity cares for the least as well as the greatest. Don't decide who you will love based on what they can give you. And Abraham and Rahab were both obedient to God. Chapter 3 then does not begin with an off-the-wall remark about how special pastors and Bible teachers are and how dangerous the office is. That's not what's here. That's part of it. But this is also part of everything else he's been talking about. So with chapters 1 and 2 in mind, the question certainly comes to mind, well then who is adequate to teach? Who is up for that task? Who's nailing all of those things that we've already covered? Who's setting a great example? And who's excited to explain these things to the church? This is a warning to those of us who stand in front of congregations that we had better be extremely careful how we use our mouths. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay, that's somewhat self-explanatory, right? In Ezekiel 33, let me double check myself. Yeah, in Ezekiel 33, 8, God is talking to Ezekiel and he says this, If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you will surely die. And you, Ezekiel, do not warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person will die in his sin, but his blood I will require of your hand. Stricter judgment. If I stand up here Sunday by Sunday and seek to make you as comfortable as I possibly can, 
and seek to line my pockets by filling these seats, never tell you to flee the wrath to come, don't accuse you of your sin, and you never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as a result, when you go to hell, I'll be responsible. Stricter judgment. Fathers and mothers, the same thing applies to you. It's not expressly laid out here, but we know this is true. Your children may well refuse to bend a knee to King Jesus. Don't let that happen because you failed to live out the gospel in your home. Don't let that happen because you failed to tell them the truth. You failed to warn them of the danger. You were more worried about their temporal comforts than their eternal condition. Stricter judgment exists for those of us who raise children. Amen? It's common sense. Even more so, I will be judged for the things that I say from this position as a pastor. You'll agree with everything I'm about to say. If I lie from this pulpit, it is more damnable than if you lie from your seat. The consequences are more dire. If I seduce someone who comes to me for counsel, it is more damnable than if you seduce somebody because I'm doing it from a position of respected authority, invested in me as it were by God. If I stand up and preach, let me say this differently. If I stand up to preach and I grind an ax instead of preach the gospel, it is more damnable than if you go on Facebook and rant and rave and alienate everybody with your politics. Okay? If you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa, the same principle is at work. Fathers who abuse their position do untold damage to their children. How many gospel opportunities have you blown, dads, how many gospel opportunities have you blown because you were too busy letting everyone in the, in the house know how important you are and who's in charge around here? Mothers who are cold and unloving do untold damage to their children's hearts. How many gospel opportunities have you blown, moms, because you're more concerned about outward obedience than tending the heart of your child? You're more embarrassed by their behavior than anything else. So with that in mind, how much more damage does it do for an unloving or abusive teacher who stands in a pulpit and proclaims his personal preference? What kind of damage does that do to the credibility of the word of God? Or what about the ones who are lazy and throw together sermons? What kind of damage does that do to spiritual health in their churches? If I come up here and just spew disorganized uh, heaps of information at you that are incongruent and of no consequence. Pastors who preach <clears throat> angry, censorious, belittling messages do untold damage to the bruised reeds and the smoldering flax of the hearts of those in the congregation. The warning then is, is, is one that should put pressure on me and make me understand that I have to handle the word of God without mangling it. The hours I have to put in to make sure that I keep these things 
well understood in my own head so that I don't distract and confuse you by the time I'm done preaching are numerous. The praying that I have to do to get my own putrid heart clean enough to get up here and talk. I mean, it, the, 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 you, could, you could put my, my Saturday and Sunday morning prayers on repeat because they're the same every week. Something along the lines of, I have no business doing this. God, if you're not merciful, this is a pointless exercise. Lord, I need you to cleanse me so that I'm not preoccupied with myself. Father, I need you to anoint me so that when people hear me speak, they don't see me, they see you. Left to myself, this is an exercise in futility. On and 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 on. I could go. Far more. Do I have to show care for what comes out of my mouth when I get up here to speak? This isn't a warning to you to stay out of the ministry. No, this is a warning to men who are already in it. To make sure they know the gravity with which they should handle the task. And it is also a warning to anybody who might consider taking this task on to understand that they are that much more desperate for God's mercy and grace. We all stumble in many ways, verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Man, am I ever glad verse 2 is here. How hopeless would it be if James didn't include it? There's a giant difference between being a dad who drinks away his children's childhood and being a dad who stumbles because of a bad week. Amen? I mean, there just is a difference. Oh, sin is sin. Okay, granted. But the consequences temporally of being an absentee father are much greater than the consequences of a father who's absent for a day. There's a huge difference. There's a giant difference between the mom who spends her children's formative years trying to impress everyone with how well put together her kids are versus a mom who stumbles into vanity from time to time. Everybody stumbles. There's a giant difference between being a lazy, axe-grinding, lying, flock-fleecing, deceiving, false-teaching cult leader and the pastor who stumbles. I stumble frequently. You know, sometimes I wince at the things that I said from the pulpit. Many times I'm, I'm not even aware <clears throat> that I've said it until somebody points it out to me after the fact. And, and often I'm like, I didn't say that. And I'll go back and listen. I'll be like, oh, I did say that. And if you find it hard to imagine doing that, record yourself talking for an hour and then go back and listen to the number of things you don't remember saying. It's got to be a disciplined exercise, preaching. One of our agenda items every elders meeting, I mean, it's on the agenda, and, and uh, it's an uncomfortable moment for everybody involved, probably more so the other guys because they're not preaching right now than it is for me. But one of the agenda items is, and I've got it titled on there, Preaching, Critique, and Suggestions. Um, whenever one of us, uh, us finishes preaching, there needs to be an opportunity for the rest to offer correction and guidance and observations so that the preaching ministry here isn't allowed to languish. And it's not a chance for everybody to congratulate me on how well I did. 
It's an opportunity for the other men who this congregation has appointed to the office to come alongside and steer me a little bit if I need steering. Hey, maybe don't talk about children dying because they don't listen to you when you're preaching. Was a great critique that I got during our last elders meeting. And I was like, I didn't say that. I went back and listened to it. Yes, I did. That's important. I expect my co-elders to have corrective guidance for me. I expect my co-elders to have concerns about something that I say from time to time. I expect my co-elders to have disagreements with me from time to time. Because if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body as well. Well, (laughs) there's only ever been one of those ever. And that was Jesus. So there's grace, thankfully, for us when we stumble. There's mercy and, and cleansing for teachers who blow it. Moms and dads who need grace. Teachers who need grace. Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us because there's grace and mercy for those who stumble. Praise God. What then is the danger of the loose cannon preacher who doesn't care about any of this? What's the danger of having a guy fill the pulpit who cannot be corrected or criticized? Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Well, part of what he's saying is that the course of an entire church can be changed by an unaccountable preacher. More dangerous still, someone's eternal soul can be steered by the words of an unaccountable preacher. Like 1.3 million acres can be scorched to ashes by a spark flying against a fallen Sitka spruce, so a soul can be scorched by the fires of hell because of the spark from a preacher's unbridled there has to be restraint not many of you should become teachers my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness this isn't a warning to you who do not teach uh, or or preach to to make sure you don't become a teacher this is a warning to those who do preach to take it seriously because if i don't how can i expect you to take it seriously If I don't, look at the damage that can be done. How many acres, I wonder, of human hearts are nothing more than a smoldering ash heap because some man who should be selling cars is peddling the word of God instead? How many lost souls have rejected the gospel entirely because their experience with a preacher was that he was a megalomaniac? If you took all the people who will never go back to church because of one idiot's conduct from the pulpit and you put all those people together, how many acres have been set ablaze by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, verse 6. All right, he's going to get into the rest of us now. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Let's read it again. And the tongue is a fire, a whole world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I almost burned down the house when I was 12. I'll give you the story. My stuffed Ninja Turtle, Leonardo, was beating the absolute beans out of a plush, curious George. I mean, George had no hope. He didn't have any ninja training. So while he was getting up from the ground at one point, George got his hands on a flamethrower. George was always an inventive combatant, and he had figured out that if you spray an aerosol can of hairspray just the right distance from a lit match, a wall of fire would engulf his opponent. So George, as he's crawling to his feet, after a massive roundhouse kiss kick from Leo, took in his little plush hand a strike-anywhere match, and scraped it on the abrasive side of the matchbox. You know when you strike a match, there's that initial torrent of spark and smoke before it resolves down to just a flame. And so we got to that point where it's just a flame walking down the matchstick to George's little flammable hand. In his other hand, with no small amount of assistance from me, George depressed the nozzle of the hairspray can, and Leonardo was immediately engulfed in a ball of fire. The outcome, much to my surprise, as the puppeteer of this whole battle, was not that Leonardo was thrown back and frustrated from the beating of George. The outcome, made far worse by the fact that this whole epic battle is taking place in my unmade bed, was that Leonardo's plushy shell instantly caught fire. I don't know what that thing was made of, but it was flammable. (laughs) I'd like to interject that I'm fairly certain this is the first time my parents are hearing this story. Yeah. My solution to Leo's problem was to chuck him against the screen of my window in an effort to keep the smoke from triggering the smoke detectors. And his shell fire, as it continued to grow, I became concerned that I wasn't going to be able to get it out. And I started looking around desperately for anything with which I could extinguish him. The good news is, The milk in the bottom of a couple-of-day-old cereal bowl is not flammable. Yeah, but it will change the smell of your Ninja Turtle forever. From an early age, then, I learned firsthand that fire while a great servant is a terrible master. 
You've got to have it in its proper place. Not too long ago, we were awakened at around four in the morning by our smoke detectors going off in the house. And, you know, Lisa and I, of course, leaped from bed. And as we raced out to gather the, the, the kids and get them out of the house, there were like a dozen thoughts that went through my head at once. Where is the fire? Are we trapped? Do you call 911 right away or do you wait and see how bad it is? Did I leave something plugged in somewhere? Was it something in the kitchen? Is the furnace on fire? And as I'm sprinting down the stairs, turning on lights as I go, I'm keeping my eye fixed on the ceiling because I figure that's where I'll see the smoke if there is any, and I didn't see any smoke. And about the time I got clear to the basement, the smoke alarm stopped. It was a false alarm. Well, you don't go, oh, and crawl back into bed and go back to sleep after something like that. You know, an investigation had to be done. The reason you don't go right back to bed and go to sleep is because fire where it belongs is among the most useful things at our disposal. But fire where it does not belong is among the worst dangers that we can encounter. So you're left wondering, what if something is on fire? What if there is a problem? Fire where it belongs is very useful. Fire where it does not belong is very destructive, so it is with the tongue. The tongue doing what it's supposed to do, very useful, very helpful tool. The tongue engaged in sinning, among the most destructive things to encounter. The tongue comprises the whole world of iniquity set among our members as that which can defile the entire body. Your mouth can set your whole life on fire. With the words, you can burn down your job, your marriage, your reputation, and all your relationships in the same day. What's more dangerous than that? What do we have that's more dangerous than that? But do we show half the care with our mouths that we do with fire? Verse 7. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I've seen these shows when animals attack. Right? You Like... Who's surprised by these? Wild animal encounters. James is right. Like we, we have tamed, quote unquote, tamed every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature and, and, and everything else. And you, like, there are videos on the internet of people with their pet lions hanging out in the living room. You've seen this, right? I'm not the only one. You see them cuddling. I've seen videos just in the last month or so of people that think it's a good idea to domesticate coyotes, let it into the house, and feed it. Are you kidding me? It's a wild animal. Some maniacs own snakes. 
and they take them out and hold them. Oof. The girls and I watched a documentary a few months ago called Blackfish, um, which was all about how SeaWorld covered up the dangers of uh, working with killer whales and the lunacy of capturing these majestic creatures that are designed to migrate thousands of miles each year and then keeping them in a swimming pool and wondering why they lose their temper. Never once, not for a nanosecond, am I surprised when I hear about these animals attacking their handlers. When a lion on a leash decides he's done pretending to be a Labrador, you find out who's really in charge, right? It's a wild animal. When Siegfried and Roy's whole Vegas thing went up in smoke, I was not surprised at all. What does surprise me is that these animals ever agree to be that domesticated in the first place. It's a wild animal. I mean, they're unpredictable. If I see a wild animal, carnivore or not, I give it a, a wide berth. Like, ground squirrels are cute, but cut one loose in your living room and see the damage that thing can do. Wild animals are wild and should be gone around. They're unpredictable. Some of them possess the strength to snuff you out faster than you can blink. And I want to live, so I give them a wide berth. But do we show half that care with the use of our tongues? I don't think it's hyperbole when James says, hey, it's even more dangerous. Your tongue is even more dangerous than all these wild beasts, more dangerous than a scorching fire. Verse 9, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Listen, this is important. Acts of pious religion done to honor God. Acts of pious religion done to honor God are empty when acts of charity and kindness toward other people are absent. Abraham was given as an example of one, and I think Rahab was given as an example of the other. Abraham is commanded, take your son, your only son, the son you love, up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. That is an, not prescriptive, act of pious religious obedience on the part of Abraham. Rahab, no spiritual giant, a prostitute in the land of Canaan, a temple prostitute in Jericho, hides the Israelite spies because she recognizes they are in grave danger. Her understanding of who God was and what he was about to do in Jericho didn't drive her to flee. It didn't drive her to fight. It drove her to assist those men when they needed charity. Abraham's faith drove him up the mountain. Rahab's faith drew the spies to her rooftop where she saved their lives. If you bless God with your prayers and praises, but curse human beings who are made in his image, your religion is empty and worthless. 
I know why none of you said amen. Because we have every justification on tap, don't we? Because you thought of the person that I shouldn't be pointing out to you. I didn't point them out. You thought of them, whoever it is. That it's okay for you to curse because they were mean. They hurt you. They're wrong. They're evil. They're lying. They're incompetent. They're not as diligent as you. They aren't as faithful. They don't. They aren't. They can't. And you do. You are. And you can. Right? But what James has just said is that if you bless God with your prayers and praises and then curse mankind who's made in his image, your religion is empty and meaningless. So what we will do is next week we'll see what real discernment looks like. Who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show by his gentle deeds. This week... We have to satisfy ourselves with an admonition that our mouths are dangerous things and need to be attended by the Holy Spirit and by self-control and by grace. We need to be a people, if we're going to grow and flourish this little church, we need to be a people who are committed to the whole word of God. Which means when God's word says your tongue is dangerous, we need to listen. When God's word says you shouldn't be blessing him with your mouth and then cursing others with the same mouth. We need to listen. There should be an adjustment that you're making moving from right now this morning to next Sunday morning. You should be able to look back on the week when you get there next Sunday. If the Lord grants us the days, you should be able to look back and go, there's the adjustment that I began to try to make. Because if you don't, I'm going to destroy you next Sunday. And I don't want to do that. I'll be destroyed next Sunday if I don't. Because where James is going, it's deep. All right? Love you guys. Let's pray. 